Well, good morning. What a joyous celebration that was. Alex and Colleen, congratulations. And Evelyn and Emery, welcome to the family. And, uh, and what a great opportunity that is for us to remember our own baptisms and to remember what God has said about us through those very same waters in Christ. Well, for the last several months, we've been journeying through the book of Acts. And in today's passage, we find ourselves with Paul and some of the other disciples in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. And we find Paul returning to Ephesus at the beginning of chapter 19, and he finds a group of disciples there, about 12 men in all. And as his custom, he begins reasoning with the Jews in the synagogues, persuading them about the kingdom of God for about three months. But when those Jews become stubborn, he withdraws and takes the disciples with him to a place called the Hall of Tyrannus, which is a, a lecture hall of sorts, and he begins reasoning and debating with the Greek philosophers there. Verse, t- verse 10 tells us that this continues for about two years so that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So that's the backdrop that we find our passage in today. And we're going to begin reading in verse 23 through 41 of Acts 19. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Now some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew... For about two hours, they cried out with a loud voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. 
Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. O Holy Spirit, you are the Lord and giver of life. We pray that you would come now, illumine our minds and hearts, and give us life in these words and in your word, through the word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, today's passage provides us with an opportunity to look squarely in the face of what is arguably the greatest temptation of mankind, and that's idolatry. And what I want to do today is I want to define idolatry. We're going to see what idolatry looks like as we see people worshiping false images in this text. And lastly, I want to shift our focus to the true image of God. So what is idolatry? Well, in his larger larger catechism, Protestant reformer Martin Luther defines idolatry this way. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon That is your God. The confidence and faith of the heart make both God and idol. And while both idols and idolatry can take many forms, it really is first and foremost a disposition of our hearts. And in this passage, we'll be looking at a very explicit form of idolatry, literally the making of small images or idols of a God and worshiping them. But we must go deeper into the heart of idolatry to see what makes it so dangerous, lest we think it doesn't pose a threat to us today. Further down in that same catechism question, Luther points out the universality of idolatry, that is that everybody is guilty of this, by pointing out that, quote, everyone has set up his special God as whatever he looks to for blessings, help, and comfort. Thus, for example, the heathen who put their trust in power and dominion elevated Jupiter as the supreme god. Others who were bent upon riches, happiness, pleasure, and a life of ease elevated Hercules or Mercury or Venus. Women with child elevated Diana or Lucina and so on. Well, this Diana that he mentions is actually just the Roman name of the goddess Artemis from our passage. Now, Artemis is the Greek goddess of women, particularly of childbirth and of children. She's a goddess of fertility and was believed to have unsurpassed power, cosmic power, over fate. She was believed to be a nurturer, a legitimate wife, and a protectress of family and of political and cosmic stability. And this brings us right into the opening dilemma of our passage as we first look at the images. So our passage opens up and we're introduced to this man named Demetrius. And Demetrius is a silversmith. And he makes, for his profession, he makes these small silver idols of the goddess Artemis. And being in Ephesus where her temple is, this is how he makes his living. People would travel from the whole region around there and and, and from all of Asia, and they would go to the temple, they would worship Artemis, they would offer sacrifices, and then on their way home, they would stop by Demetrius's gift shop and they would buy a little idol that they could bring home and they could set in their home and worship there. 
But Demetrius has a problem. His business is tanking. He's got an overstock of little Artemis idols. And so he gathers together the other idol makers, the other woodworkers and metalsmiths who likely would have earned their living the same way, and he alerts them to this problem. And the problem exists because the Apostle Paul has been in Ephesus and the surrounding region for two years proclaiming to anyone and anyone who would listen that gods that are made with hands are not gods. And this isn't even an isolated incident. In fact, in the passage that immediately precedes the one that we're in, there's an incident that takes place because of Paul's ministry, and there's a lot of conversions. And because of these conversions, people start burning their magic books and other items of false worship. And so what's going on is these idol factories and these magic bookstores and all the other trades that make up such a big part of the economy in Ephesus are being rocked by Paul's preaching, which leads us into this next paragraph, which is about a confused church. Now, you may say to me, why would you, why would you call this a church? Well, aside from the fact that they're there to worship their God, Luke himself, who is the author of the book of Acts, actually calls it a church. The word that's translated assembly in verses 32 and 41 is the Greek word ekklesia, and that's the word that's translated as church. And what Luke is doing is he's pointing out the types of churches or assemblies that are created by worshiping gods that are not gods. And this church, the one that we've read about, is marked by rage, confusion, violence, and ignorance. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged, And they go on to act on that rage and they drag two of Paul's companions into the middle of their worship service. Verse 29, so the city was filled with confusion. Verse 32, for the assembly was in confusion. And it even goes beyond confusion. Some cried out one thing and some another. For the assembly was in confusion and many of them did not even know why they were there. And even when Alexander tries to motion to the crowd to calm them down, they shut him down. It's a horrible scene. It's a scene of raw rage and confusion. And the reason for this is that idolatry always leads to confusion and folly. I don't know if there's a passage in Scripture that highlights the folly of idolatry, like Isaiah chapter 44 Listen to Isaiah describe what's going on specifically in this type of idol worship in verses 12 through 20. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and he works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and he works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. Also, He makes a god and worships it. 
He makes himself an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, and over that half he eats meat, he roasts it, and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself, and he says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and I've eaten. And shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? You see, what Isaiah is getting at is to make an idol is to take something that God has already given us for our good, to use it and cultivate it the way that God had intended, but then to turn around and make an idol out of it and bow down and worship it rather than worshiping the God who made it for our good. Isaiah even points out our own weakness. We get hungry. We grow faint. And yet we made this thing, and now we're going to worship the thing that we who are weak just made? Idolatry always leads to folly and to confusion. Well, as we move down into this last paragraph, finally things begin to calm down. Finally, someone is able to calm this crowd This town clerk is a county official who wants peace and he doesn't want the riot to get even worse. So he asked them to go home, to be quiet, and to do nothing rash. And if Demetrius and his friends want to take up a case against anyone, they need to do it through the court system lawfully. It sounds like wise enough advice, and it makes sense on the surface. But just beneath the surface... Luke is continuing to show the utter confusion in the city, and he's making another incredibly important point about idol worship. You see, every every week when, when we gather together for worship, God calls us into his presence. He serves us by forgiving us of our sins, by cleansing us and washing us with his word and with sacraments. And then he feeds us a meal And then after we've received his own very life, we are commissioned by his minister to go. Just as Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28. And even in the beginning of the book of Acts, before Jesus ascends to heaven, he tells his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The town clerk tells the people to, quote, do nothing rash. Rashness is defined as doing something without concern for the consequences. The town clerk is warning them to be especially careful or they may get sued or even jailed. And the contrast could not be more stark. Jesus' disciples go out and are both loud and rash. They are repeatedly, if you, if, even how we've tracked through the book of Acts, they're repeatedly beaten and jailed and even stoned. 
They're constantly preaching the gospel in any and every circumstance, regardless of the consequences. The best example of this that I love is in Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John are, are going through this cycle. They're preaching the gospel. They're getting beaten up. They're getting jailed and released. And then they preach the gospel, get beaten up and jailed. And then finally, the city officials are tired. And they go, please stop talking about Jesus. We're tired of beating you and jailing you. And their response is amazing. They go, well, whether you think it's right for us to obey you or, or, or God, you, you guys can figure that out. But we can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. We are serving a God who raises the dead. So you can take us to jail. You can lock us up. You can beat us and you can kill us. Because our God raises the dead. And they're like this because Jesus, the one who they worship, is like this too. He was beat. He preached the gospel it got him in trouble. He was beaten and he was crucified. Upon giving these orders, the clerk dismisses the assembly. Or because it was a worship service, we might see it as a benediction. And their benediction is to be quiet, just like their idol, who at the mere preaching of Jesus has her temple emptied, is stripped from her glory and her fame, and is shown to be what she truly is, and it's a mere statue. And that's because of a principle that we find all throughout Scripture. And it's this. Human beings become like the gods that they worship. Listen to the words of Psalm 115. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God's in the heavens. And he does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. New Testament theologian Greg Beale has a great book called We Become What We Worship. And the thesis of the book is this. What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. I want to say that again. What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. And it rests on a fundamental pr tr uh, truth that, that Joe pointed out earlier. We can't help but worship. It's what we were created for. And the things that we worship, God allows them to make us into their own image when we choose them over him. And when we unnaturally worship things that are made, that cannot see or hear, or even receive our worship... Our faculties are distorted, and we too become blind and deaf, unable to engage the world around us as we should. And we see here the danger of idolatry, and we should take heed of the consequences. Well, thus far the images, let's turn our focus to the image. We said earlier that idolatry is universal, 
And even explicit idolatry like this, making little images out of stone or wood, can be traced to virtually every culture in all of human history. And we would be wise to ask why that's the case. Why is it in all times and in all places, people feel the need to make an image of God and put it in a temple? Well, what if I told you that the reason that that's the case is because that's exactly what God did in the beginning? Genesis 1-1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in days 1 through 5 of creation, he goes on creating spaces, dividing those spaces, and then filling those spaces. And then on the sixth day, he creates man, and he creates him in his own image. And it's a unique process. For everything else that he creates, he merely says the thing, and then it appears, and it does exactly what he tells it to do. But in Genesis 1.26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. There's an intimacy that defines this new creation, which is followed by the command to do on earth what God does in heaven over all his creation. And then we get an even clearer picture of the image of God in us. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then listen to the commands that God gives to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's go through those commands one by one. Be fruitful and multiply. He wants them to have children, which is a pretty great command to have right off the bat. And in Genesis 5, we have the beginning of the genealogies in Genesis. And in the New King James Version, it sounds like this. Seth lived 105 years, and he begot Enosh. Enosh lived 90 years, and he begot Canaan. Canaan lived 70 years, and he begot Mahalel, and so forth. And it goes on for a while. The first command that God gives his image is to beget. Because he is a begetting God. You see, the Father has been begetting the Son from all eternity. He is the only begotten Son, John 3.16. Now, we have to be extremely clear. Jesus is not a creature. And this doesn't mean that there was a time that he wasn't and then he came into being. It means that from all eternity, he has been the Son of the Father. There's never a time that the Father was not a father and the Son was not the Father's Son. The second thing he tells them is to fill the earth. As mentioned, God just created the heavens and the earth, and then he goes on to fill them, and he creates his image, and he tells them, go and be like your father and fill the earth. And then he tells them to have dominion. God has dominion over the universe. And when he creates man in his image, male and female, he tells them to have dominion over the earth and over creation, like he does in heaven. He wants us to go out and to create and make beautiful things and glorify them and cultivate them. One author puts it this way. It is humanity who is to be the eyes, ears, mouth, being, and action of the creator God within his creation. 
Humanity is given both the freedom of the cosmos, is entitled to be fed from its produce, is to fill it with God's presence, and is to exercise the creator's own divine rule over his creation. Could we even fathom up a more beautiful picture for the the dignity and the inherent worth of human beings than this one? What a beautiful God he is. So we see the image of God, but what about the temple? Well, we have to define what makes a temple a temple. Because if we simply mean a building, then clearly the garden is not a temple. But what makes a temple a temple is the presence of God. And that's exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 3. God walking in the garden at peace with his new image that he just created. Now, there's a number of insights uh, in the Bible that point to this fact, but I wanted to just run through three very quickly, and we actually see them by reading our Bibles backwards. The same Hebrew words for, that, that, that are used to describe God's walking back and forth in the garden in Genesis 3.8 are the exact words to use, that are used to describe what God does in the tabernacle in Deuteronomy 23.14 and Leviticus 26.12. Secondly, when God is giving Solomon the directions to build the later physical temple, he wants it to look like a garden. 1 Kings 6.32, he covered the two doors to the inner sanctuary of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. These cherubim were to recall the cherubim that were placed in the east of Eden when Adam and Eve were expelled because to enter into the Holy of Holies was to enter back into the garden in Eden. In Genesis 2.15, lastly, it says, The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And these two words, to work and to keep, can also be translated to serve and to guard. And they're the same words that are used about the work that the priests and the Levites do in the tabernacle, who serve God in the temple And who guard the temple. You see the temple was to be like the garden. Because the garden was a temple. Because a temple is where God and his creation meet together. It is quite literally the meeting place of heaven and earth. So Adam is placed in the garden in Eden. And his first task is to protect it. To guard it from anything that would profane that holy place. And sadly... The first thing that happens in the garden is that he fails in this regard. He allows a serpent to come in and to deceive his wife, to deceive him, and to break their fellowship with their God. And what's so devastating about this is that the serpent tempts them with something that they already have and makes them want more of it for their own glory. He tells them that if they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they will be like God. And he knows that they're already like God, as we have seen, but he wants them to grasp for more and to do things on their terms and on his terms and not on God's terms. They were in a probationary period, and rather than trusting in God's word, they trusted in the word of a serpent. And in that moment, The image of God in them was broken. They did not have dominion over the creatures, but were dominated by one. 
And it was through this that sin entered into the world and death through sin. And we not only feel that brokenness so intimately, but we also transgress and are guilty of not being faithful image bearers. And so herein lies our predicament. We find ourselves looking for a faithful image, one who accurately and faithfully represents and images forth God to us. We need a new Adam, one who is faithful to God's commands and accurately portrays to us what God is like, one who carries out the mission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion. And friends, that is exactly what we find in Jesus. We read Colossians 1, 15 through 20 earlier, but I want to read it again to you. And I want you to try to hear it afresh and hear it anew, and I'll try to read it that way. And especially on the heels of everything that we just talked about. Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn or the inheritor of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And that's all the invisible stuff. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Hebrews 1.3 says something similar but gets even more pointed. It says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We can only know what God is like by beholding his glory in the face of Jesus. But even more, it's only in Jesus that we truly find ourselves as those created in his image. And even more than that, it's only in Jesus that we find everything and infinitely more than we desperately so grasp for in our idols. So as we conclude, I wanted to leave you with two practical applications, which are really just two sides of the same coin. The first exhortation I'd leave you with is simply what John closes his first epistle with in 1 John 5.21. And that's this. Brothers and sisters, keep yourselves from idols. And this can be not only difficult, but sometimes it's really challenging to know what our idols are. And so here, here's uh, one thing that I think that, that we could do today. Take 20 or 30 minutes and go be alone. Spend that time with God. Give that time to him. Sacrifice it to him and pray. And ask him to reveal what your idols are. 
Be honest with him. And you can pray with confidence because Jesus tells us that anything that we ask for in his name and according to his will, that the Father loves to hear those prayers and he loves to answer them. And as you pray, spend some time asking yourself some questions. And I wanted to give us a couple questions that I think will help us to identify what these idols are in our hearts. Where does my heart place its confidence and its trust? What are the things that I hope in to deliver me from fear and from sadness and to give me peace and joy? How about this? Worship is really sacrifice and sacrifice is worship. So what are you sacrificing to? And what are you sacrificing for? And what are you sacrificing? Here's another one. Paul in Colossians 3, 5 says that covetousness is idolatry. What do you covet? What do you look at and say, I want that? Now, now just to be clear, many of these things are, are most likely good things. Like we said, idolatry is, is often simply loving things more than God. And rooting idols out of our heart is reorienting our loves and our passions and our energies so that they accurately reflect our relationship with God and his will for our life. The second exhortation that I'd leave you with today is really just the other side of that coin. As you keep yourself from idols and as you turn from them, don't just white-knuckle it, but turn towards Jesus and fix your eyes on him in faith. We said earlier that the Bible teaches that we become what we worship either for ruin or for restoration. And no matter who you are, everybody in this room, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, whether you're walking with the Lord or whether you're struggling in your sin, whether you're old or whether you're young, the plea this morning and the call is to worship the true image, Jesus, and be restored. Listen to how good this news is. As you behold him in faith, you will actually be transformed by the Holy Spirit into his same image. The words of the old hymn say it best. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Amen? Amen. Well, let's sing the words of that hymn together as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper.